This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Surprise! This week's episode of Women Who Travel is not just on a Wednesday because of the long weekend. We are officially moving from our usual morning drops on Tuesdays, and starting this week, all new episodes of Women Who Travel will pop up in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts on Wednesday mornings instead. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We really hope you enjoy this one. and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lala Arakoglu. Hello! Today, we are so excited to be joined by Nikki Smith, a true multi-hyphenate in the outdoors. She's a professional rock climber, a boulderer, a photographer, a writer, a climbing guidebook publisher. I'm sure I have missed other things that you do, um, but we are so excited to have you calling in today, Nikki. Well, thanks for having me. To get started, you've been working in the outdoor industry for more than 20 years now, but what first drew you to the outdoors when you were young, like before it became a career for you? Um, my father worked for the Bureau of Land Management and then Forest Service, and he was an archaeologist and geologist um, by profession and degree. And then he was an amateur photographer as well, and so we were just always outside looking for minerals or fossils or hiking around. My neighborhood was always surrounded by farms and fields. And so that was kind of my playground. When you were a kid, did it occur to you that it was sort of quite special and lucky to be growing up in that much sort of outdoors and wilderness and to kind of have that access? Not at all. That was all I knew. Um, growing up in Utah, I, I don't know, I, I couldn't even picture traveling until later in life. Like, I just never thought that would be something I would do. That was just, my world was the towns that I lived in at the time. When do you feel like that switch clicked for you, that, like, travel was a reality and something that you were really interested in pursuing? Uh, that started to change once I got into climbing. Um, I was 16, started climbing, and I started seeing these climbing magazines and climbing movies and saw these people going all over the place. And then I started meeting people from the climbing community and they seemed just like me, but they had been to Europe and they had traveled all over the U.S. And I just never thought that would be something I could even do. But I was still, you know, I couldn't afford it at the time. It wasn't until I joined the army and kind of started going with college and, and life that I thought, okay, this maybe could really be something I can afford to do or do. 
What got you into the climbing in the first place, you know, beyond just being in the outdoors? Because when I think about all the things you can do, hiking, rafting, mountain biking, like I, there's like the possibilities are endless. What is it about climbing that just really drew you in? Climbing requires a lot of focus in in a way that, you know, hiking or running, your, your mind can wander the whole time. You're thinking about a lot of things and you know, often you carry your work or personal life or whatever with you on the trail, but climbing, you can't, you have to be so focused. It's problem solving. It's kind of a puzzle because each line up a cliff face or mountain is going to be very different. And you have to constantly be thinking ahead of how am I going to grab that hold? What am I going to, how am I going to move my body? What am I going to do next? And then you also have the the fear of falling. I'm afraid of heights. And so thinking about, you know, how to protect yourself, you know, where to place, place protection on the climb, just everything involved, you have to be so focused that it tuned everything else out. And I didn't have to think about what was going on in my life, in my family, you know, my identity, any of that. And it was just, I could be right then and there. The only thing that existed was just my body on the wall. And that was a relief in a lot of ways. And just, it was so nice to be able to focus in that way. I want to dial back for a second, because you mentioned that you're afraid of heights. Yes. And I think, (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people who are afraid of heights or have some sort of fear like that would think, okay, this particular activity is not for me. I'll try something else. What do you think made you decide that you were going to kind of try to overcome that fear or climb with that fear? Peer pressure. (laughs) I had repelled before and being on top of a cliff or coming down was scary, but I, I had some kids my age invite me to go climbing and I didn't, I don't know, I didn't want to, look like the wimp or whatever. And so I went along and starting from the bottom kind of changes things, you know, like I still have an issue getting on a tall building or, or like the edge of the Grand Canyon or, you know, like a severe drop like that, just walking up to the edge really scares me. But starting from the bottom, you can break it down a little more and over time, I've developed ways to kind of cope with it and manage manage it. Uh, but yeah, it was a little bit of peer pressure of just like, okay, I want to try to fit in and just decided to do it. I feel like we talk about the outdoors just generally being this like really restorative place and something that's really healthy, not only for your physical health, but for your mental health. And you were talking about how that focus um, has really helped you through that how has that helped you with your own mental health and just like general well-being? Uh, it's provided me with an outlet. It was my break. You know, I didn't have to think or worry about anything else at that moment. But you still have the approaches to climbs a lot of times. And so you can still be outside. I still have that ability to process while I'm out there. But then I can shut it off for that certain amount of time. Uh, it helped build community. Most of the people that I've been friends with for the past 20 years have come from the climbing community. It's become my career. It's taken me all over the world. And so it's provided a lot of opportunity for me in pretty much every aspect of my life. Um, it's it's really helped out in in discovering who I am. Most of the biggest decisions in my life have been made 
while I was in the mountains, you know, trying to figure things out. Um, you know, talking about the focus of climbing and it sort of taking you into the mountains to kind of work through stuff. You know, you also work as a photographer and photography seems like it was a real entrance into the outdoors for you as well. What role has photography played in your relationship with the outdoors and climbing and sort of what role has it played in that course of sort of discovery when you're out outside? Photography definitely helped me move around within the climbing industry and within groups. Uh, oftentimes, people, depending on where they live, you know, you find your climbing partners and you kind of stick to that and you don't branch out too much. But because I was a photographer, I could move around from group to group, meeting a lot of different people. That was my excuse to travel. Like often my trips were funded through my photography. So I could pick an area I wanted to go to in the U.S. or somewhere in the country, outside of the country, and that would help pay for it. And so I could propose trips and get people to go, or you know, you can just call up people that maybe I'd only met online and like, hey, I want to do a photo story in your area. Can I come visit? And people were pretty receptive to that. So it it really helped me move through through the community in a way that. I probably wouldn't have without the photography and there's good and bad to this, but I also used it and still do probably um, as a way to hide. So I could be with a group of people and hanging out and climbing. And if I got uncomfortable with certain discussions or things were getting too personal or whatever it might be, or just feeling overwhelmed, I could just pick up the camera and use as, as an excuse to kind of be there, but still distance myself from everyone and everything. What have been some of your favorite places to photograph? And then what have been your some of your favorite places to climb to create that world for yourself? I think often they're one and the same. And it's sometimes it's about the place. I mean, there's there are so many beautiful places all over the world. But often it's more about who I'm in those places with that really makes it. And some of the experiences that I have there. Um, one of the things I really like about climbing and most of my travel, you know, when I go to Europe or Asia or wherever it might be, even in the U.S., I'm not really going to tourist destinations. I'm maybe traveling through there, but I'm going into rural villages or towns. You're still a tourist. You're always a tourist in these places, but you're more involved with the people and place, whereas I think we've kind of Americanized a lot of the places we travel that are big destinations and everyone there might speak English and you can read the menus and all that. When you go to these other places, you can't always do that. And so it forces you to try to learn enough language to get by, figure out how to at least translate enough to order off of a menu, plan out your trip and you meet local climbers or, you know, people that live in the mountains and create some really great friendships and just that experience where, things aren't scripted. It's not, you know, this pre-planned thing. You get to know your travel partners that you brought with you in a different way as well. And then climbing itself, it's one of the few experiences where you're literally placing your life in someone else's hands. They're, they're on the other side of your rope, whether they're the ones climbing, making decisions, or they're belaying you. And that builds a trust in a way that I haven't experienced outside of the military. And 
there's a lot of bonding in that. And so the travel, the climbing, the experiences, all that combined just bring a different experience for me for travel. And yeah, I can find that pretty much anywhere as long as I have the right people. I really liked Mongolia. That was just such a unique place for me, just so far off the beaten path and just felt so far out there and away from everything and just seeing a culture that doesn't get visited as much as a lot of the other countries you go to. Um, You'd see this mix of traditional dress and way of life mashing up against more modern ways of life and just seeing seeing that and picturing how that was in the U.S. a hundred years ago like that. And it, it was just really interesting. The people were great and the crew I was with was just a lot of fun. That was, I think, one of my favorite places. The climbing wasn't that good, but <laughs> the trip and was amazing. But it's the people that make it that make it what it is. Definitely. Exactly what you're For me, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, everyone's a little different in there. Some people it is all about the climbing and sometimes it can be some, you know, but the people are, are huge. Just that overall experience is what I really like. Join me, Esther Perel, every Monday in my office on Where Should We Begin? I'm talking to couples and individuals about love and work, about turning conflict into connection. More than ever, our relationships define the quality of our lives. So let's explore the myriad of relational challenges together. See you Monday. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you mentioned having like a climbing partner and, you know, the kind of incredible level of trust that you have to have in that person when you're doing these climbs, how long are you building that relationship up with that person? You know, for someone like myself who like isn't that familiar with the climbing community, like how does that work? How do you sort of find your person? That varies. Um, You know, in the past 20 years ago, when and earlier, when you'd started, you would have a mentor. 
and the community was a lot smaller. Now there there isn't as much mentorship for a lot of different reasons. Um, things are just growing so rapidly. Sometimes people will just post on Facebook or in a message group and meet up with somebody. Uh, I'm very careful about that. Uh, I'm very picky with who I decide to go out with. Um, most of my climbing partners, I've climbed with a lot of them for more than 20 years now. Some of the newer ones, even though we haven't been climbing together as long, it, there's kind of a referral system almost like, oh, you've climbed with so-and-so and you've been their partner for so long and you've done this. And you you kind of see their resume of what they've done in the mountains and how they've handled different accidents or different experiences. And so you're like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to trust this person. Um, you know, there's the safety is definitely a big factor in there, but a lot of it is just how well you get along together because you're spending a lot of time in remote areas and, you know, you have to be able to get along and you have to be able to trust their judgment and they have to be able to trust yours. So for me, it's a, a lengthy process in some ways, trying um, someone new. I feel like communication is also so key. I'm curious what you think the difference is between your like ideal travel partner and your ideal climbing partner. Because I feel like in maybe not the life or death kind of way, but it's a lot of the same skills that you need to be able to get along with a person when you're on a trip together in a yeah. place neither of you know. For the most part, it's really the same. Even climbing around here in the U.S. or around Utah where I live, We'll often do a two-hour drive, and then you could do a four-hour hike to get to the climb, or you're camping overnight. And so you're still probably spending more time with that person kind of in a travel-type mode or experience than you are actually on the climb a lot of times. And so that experience of being able to trust their judgment on the road, on you know, on a trip, whatever, just in day-to-day stuff is is going to be indicative sometimes of, of how they might make decisions in the mountains if they're very rash and careless with with their packing and travel and whatever it might be, then I would expect that they're probably going to be a little bit similar in their climbing. So it's very similar for me. Never trust someone with a messy backpack is what I'm learning. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Nikki's like, well, my backpack. <laughs> they say messiness is a sign of creativity. There we go. I, exactly. I, I take that as a compliment. Um, so since you're in Utah right now, you know, like how are you staying connected to the outdoors during this time? Because I, you know, we're talking about staying indoors, staying inside, being, you know, on your own and Climbing, maybe not bouldering, but climbing is definitely like a, a team partner job. How are you staying connected to climbing and to the outdoors when when we're all kind of at home? Yeah, I haven't been climbing. Um, I've kind of stayed away from that, just decided I'm sure like I could go with my wife, you know, we, we could keep it within the household, but there's always a risk. For the most part, climbing is pretty safe, but there's always a risk you could get injured and rescues from climbing areas are often more involved and the, the PPE that would be required to for a search and rescue team to get someone out of there has kind of kept me away from that. So mostly I've been trail running or running in the neighborhood. That was hard initially. We didn't leave the house much for the first month. And then slowly we started looking for trails and we'd go out and 
there's just so many people doing outdoor things in Salt Lake that I'd pull up at a trailhead and it would be just lined with cars and just turn around and go home. But I just kept looking at lesser and lesser known trailheads. And then I'd start looking at different times like, oh, there's a storm coming. It looks a little dark, but I don't think it's going to be too bad. So I'll run in a light rain. That's fine. No one else will be out and picking times where the trail is going to be the least crowded and also trails that are wide enough that you could get off the trail if someone does come along. So I've been trying to do that and just focusing on trail running right now, try to keep in shape without having to worry too much about needing other people to partner with or anything. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. You kind of mentioned this when you were saying that a lot of the trailheads are, are packed with people, but you know national parks are opening and, and outdoor spaces, as far as we can tell, are going to be some of the first places that we travel domestically and explore as the world reopens. But you don't just become an outdoors person overnight, which is something that Lolly and I can very much identify with. How do we make new climbers, hikers, people hitting the trails for the first time feel both welcomed and educated about what they should and shouldn't be doing. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot to that. Um, you know, traditionally the outdoors and outdoor industry, a lot of companies have had this motto that the outdoors are for everybody. And while that's true in some ways, once you're outside, it doesn't matter who you are, what your identity is, but the outdoors are filled with people And to get to the trailheads can be an issue, whether it's financially, whether it's geographically or, you know, experience, but also, you know, for myself, you know, traveling through small towns and having to stop at a gas station where I might need to use the bathroom can be pretty scary. Um, I'm not always welcomed in a lot of towns when I go to the grocery store or gas station or restaurants or there, uh, people aren't always nice on trail systems. And there's been a lot of elitism, especially in climbing, but I think in other outdoor sports too. And as climbing has really grown, there's been a lot of people upset about the influx of climbers and you know they don't understand the etiquette, but it's we haven't done a good job of welcoming people in there. I was able to hide and kind of blend in in a way where even though I didn't feel like I fit in, everyone saw me physically as someone who fit in and I was able to continue in the outdoors. But the way I'm viewed now is completely different. And there are a lot of people who just don't feel welcome at all uh, because of a part of the identity or the lack of experience. And so it's more and more, there are all sorts of affinity groups that are being created uh, that 
are welcoming people of whether it's geographically, racially, economically, whatever it might be, that are showing people that yeah, people like like you that look like you are doing this and you belong. And so, you know, Shelma Jun has created Flash Foxy, which is an all-women's climbing fest. Uh, Jenny Brusso has created Unlikely Hikers for anyone that doesn't fit the typical mold of the outdoors. There's Outdoor Afro, Latino Outdoors, Native Women's Wilderness. Uh, there's so many different groups now that are really trying to show that we belong and provide a safe space for people who haven't felt like they could safely recreate to come into the sport, learn from people like them, and have an environment where you can either talk about the issues because everyone else has had that or not because you know everyone else around you understands what you've had to go through to be there. And those groups make a huge difference. You know, Shelma's Flash Foxy events, there's almost 400 women that go to these three-day climbing festivals twice a year, and it sells out within an hour. And there's there's one called Color of the Crag that's for anyone who identifies as a person of color, and that sells out really quickly in hundreds of climbers. And they're held in places that you wouldn't traditionally think. West Virginia is not where I would think, you know, I could safely go and climb with a hundred other queer climbers. But some of that is because we want to show we belong and it doesn't matter where it's at, you know, we belong outside and we can do it, but we have to create these spaces and we have to do more to welcome people in there and the establishment as far as the outdoor industry or bike industry or whatever it may be, needs to do more to welcome people in and to create more of these spaces and programs for people to feel welcome. You know, I think in this moment right now, there is a lot of talk about, you know, post-pandemic, like how we can make change and, you know, not necessarily go back into the same like world as we did before. You know, you talked a little bit about the sort of state of the climbing community now and these like amazing groups like Flash Foxy and Unlikely unlikely Hikers. What do you think is actionable work that can be done in the near future to help more people feel welcomed into the climbing community and to make it feel more inclusive? I think a lot of what needs to be done, these groups are forming, they're growing rapidly, but they're not necessarily getting the industry support that they need. And, you know, anytime I'm invited to speak at an event or something, the comments from everyone else aren't always nice. There's a lot of support, but there's some people who are pretty unhappy. And I think a lot of times what we need are for people to realize and think about, you know, that it's always thrown around like, why do you have to make all this political? This is just climbing. Why can't climbing just be about climbing? Well, my climbing can't just be about climbing because everything in my life with my identity affects my climbing. One of the Flash Foxy events is in Tennessee. Tennessee has a law uh, that just passed, I think, in early 2019 to where I could be arrested and charged with indecent exposure for using a public bathroom. So going to Tennessee for a climbing event, I'm scared to death. And even though I was surrounded with people that would have protected me at the events, 
for the evenings and that I would drive back to my hotel room to use the bathroom. And so I wasn't hanging out with everybody. And so it's political. And so we, regardless of whether I want it to be or not, I don't have to talk about it. I don't have to say anything, but I'm going to get harassed wherever I go. And so to change that, it can't just be these affinity groups that are trying to support people. We need everyone else who's in climbing, who's in cycling, who's in hiking to start standing up when someone's harassing us, when someone makes these comments online, when someone you know, goes off about why we don't need women's climbing groups or climbing groups for people of color or queer folks. It's necessary right now because it's not welcoming and people don't think because they've never seen it themselves that it exists or whatever it might be, but it exists and it affects us. And we need the support of people involved already that don't identify as someone from an underrepresented group. And we need industry support. We need the companies to start having more diverse sponsorship teams. And when they have their catalogs and advertisements to start showing people of color, plus size people, people from the adaptive community, queer folks, like we have to see ourselves out there and the industry can do a lot to change that. I'm just soaking that all in. Just <laughs> that's No, that's so great. Um, no, I mean, a lot of what we talk about with our Facebook group is that you will be pushed to think you can do something if you see someone else like you doing that. So I think when you talk about just something as quote unquote basic as the catalog photos and making them showcase such an array of the people that exist in the world and like mirror that, it wouldn't take that much from the companies, but would mean so many more people could see themselves out in the world. Yeah. And you, you can see this when you go into a lot of outdoor stores, like maybe it's maybe it's a surf shop, maybe it's a bike shop or, or any other type of outdoor shop. You'll see these photos on the walls of these guys who are shirtless and ripped and like super fit doing all these amazing things. And then you see a photo of a woman and she's holding up a surfboard in a bikini or or maybe like the guys are again climbing or mountain biking and the woman's doing yoga. Like the messaging that we get all the time, even in in stores and from companies, isn't showing women doing the same badass things that men are doing. And they can easily change that. Well, then as you said, like Flash Foxy events sell out in minutes. The demand is there. It is. And they could if they could add more, I'm sure they would fill up too. I mean, all these events are just so necessary right now for people to feel safe and welcome. And, you know, as, as things are overcrowding and there are becoming more and more issues of people not knowing how to recreate in there, well, how do we expect them to learn how to safely, ethically recreate in the outdoors if they don't feel welcome to join into these groups in the first place because I'm going to show up and I'm going to get made fun of. People are going to harass me. People are going to throw things at me. Why would I go to one of those? And so we have to change that and change these these systems overall to make people feel more welcome. And these type of affinity groups are doing that, but we need the broader communities to really show more support and acceptance for everyone else. You know, Shalma and Jenny have really worked on changing the image of who you see out in the world, especially on social media. Who are your favorite 
strong, badass women in the outdoors that you feel like people should see fully on social media? There's so many, and I'm <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble just not being able to name them all. But um, <laughs> uh, Karima Bats um, on Instagram, it's uh, her hopeness, hopness. Uh, she's an adaptive climber. Irene Yi, she's known as Lady Lockoff on Instagram. She's an amazing photographer who, from the beginning, has shown people of color, people of different body types, you know, not the traditional narrative of who a climber is in her photography. Uh, Brittany Levitt, uh, she's B Levitt 8 on Instagram. Uh, she's a leader of Outdoor Afro and Brown Girls Climb. Uh, Sam Ortiz, Sam Ortiz photo on Instagram. She's a plus size Latinx mountaineer and climbing photographer. Uh, Jalen Go, uh, she's Jalen Go on Instagram. She's the founder of Native Women's Wilderness. Uh, Pisith Sam, uh, her name on Instagram's Mighty Might eighty eight. Uh, she's a queer immigrant uh, woman in climbing. Melise Marie, she's a PhD student in focusing in STEM, and then she's an amazing climber. Uh, they all advocate constantly for their own communities and other communities. They they put out a lot of things that people don't always like what they have to say, um, just like they don't always like what I have to say. But we're saying it for a reason. Like this stuff happens. And whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not, at least listening and thinking about why we might be saying that, why someone might have that experience or that message is something that more and more of us need to do. We need to challenge our systems because everyone, whether it's where you live, who your social group is, that's what you see over and over. And your viewpoints keep getting reinforced by the same same ideology and following people that have different experiences of you than you can really help do that. And even, you know, even with me, I'm one trans person, you know, in my experience, I'm probably in the top 10% of best possible outcomes for someone who's trans. And so following me alone as a trans person, isn't going to give you a good idea of what trans people face daily. You need to follow multiple people from a lot of different groups if you really want to have more insight into what happens to us, into what goes on, into what our barriers might be for travel, for outdoors, and that. So just try to diversify your feed as much as possible with with new ideas and new experiences. And I guarantee your feed will be so much more interesting. <laughs> I think <Exactly>. so. <laughs> It can be challenging and that can be uncomfortable for people. Um, but I would, I would just advise you to just keep listening and think about why are you uncomfortable? Why did what someone had to say make you uncomfortable and really dig into that? If people want to follow you and add you to their feeds, where can they find you on social media? Uh, on Instagram, my personal one, which I do the majority of my advocacy uh, work is Nikki, N-I-K-K-I-K underscore Smith. And then my photography is pull photo on Instagram. And you can find me at Lale Hannah on Instagram. 
and I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. Uh, you can find links to all of the women that Nikki mentioned in the show notes, along with stories that we have with Shelma and Jenny. And uh, please be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and join our Facebook group and sign up for the newsletter. We have so many things. All of the links will be in the show notes and we'll talk to you next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.